Yeah, we had a student uh, in my first year who like, like everybody else in the ministry was gay. And then this one student was straight. And like, and when they finally told us, I was like, we were all just like shocked and astounded. Like, <laughs> well, I guess we'll accept your heterosexual lifestyle. <laughs> you don't have to like it, you know. Just don't all the time. Do you stem when you worship? Tick when you pray? Welcome to the Autistic Mystic. My name is Jeff. I am the Autistic Mystic, and today we have a fantabulous, splendiferous, wonderful show for you. My guest is the amazing Charles Graves. Charles is an Episcopal priest down in Houston, Texas, doing campus ministry called Houston Canterbury, or QCAN. Uh, and as a gay black priest working in a southern evangelical area, Charles has some amazing insight into ministering to queer people, ministering across traditions, civil rights, both now and throughout history, and the church's role in civil rights and in social justice. And we get into all of that. So buckle up, grab your noise-canceling headphones, and hold on for this week's info dump. This is the gayest ministry in town with Charles Graves. Why don't we start with Pentecost, actually? Because you, you, you sort of you you mentioned that already about your sermon. Um, do you, what's your like? Do you, does your church do anything big for Pentecost? Is it is it a whole event or is uh, it? No, well, it's it's hard for me to say for two reasons. One, because I'm a campus minister, and right. our last campus service was actually May second. It's usually the first Sunday of May. Okay. So um, we don't we don't really have Pentecost in campus. Right. My students are graduating this week. In fact, well, my school, my schools have different graduation dates, but anyway, long story short, this week and next week are graduations. So, okay. um, but I, I get to um, fill in and, and spend time a lot at St. Luke's, St. Luke the Evangelist Episcopal Church, which is right okay. next the Texas Southern University campus. And um, they, I've only been there two years. So the two, the two Pentecosts, well, the only Pentecost that I've been here for so far was like, you know, two months into the pandemic. And right. so <laughs> I really have no idea <laughs> what they normally do for Pentecost. It's okay, yeah. Good say. point. Yeah, but, but uh, I will say that Pentecost is my favorite, um, my, my favorite day of the church year. You know, yeah. I'll take Pentecost over Easter, over Christmas, over the rest of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like it should, it almost should have more weight to it like christmas is very much like an add-on in terms of like the history of, oh, yeah. of, of celebrating things in church and like easter um easter is just like the craziest uh week for most pastors like it's you're you're pulling your hair out by the end of it because there's like services depending on what church you're at and what tradition you're in there's services every day that week and yeah. then like three on the sunday um uh, and then pentecost uh, it wasn't really a big deal in a lot of the churches I grew up at. Like I, I grew up at one church mainly, and then I kind of hopped around in my teenage years um, and none of them really made a big deal out of it. And then it wasn't the, it was the first church I worked at um, where the the pastor was like, Hey, like, this is like, this is the church's birthday. This is my favorite day of the yeah. church calendar. We're going to, yeah. we're going to, we're going to go all out. And he like uh, uh, decked out the, um, uh, the the sanctuary with like mm -hmm. streamers and stuff like that and uh, yeah it was a good time yeah. but Pentecost gets gets short shrift for a lot of reasons but uh, I mean one of the reasons 
Well, I mean, there, and there's so much packed into it. You get the birthday of the church, you get the Holy Spirit, you get the languages. Um, mm-hmm. I, for a while, I had the, um, we might talk about this later, I had the, the extraordinary joy that I was, um, uh, the year after I graduated seminary, I got to be um, a missionary of the Episcopal Church in Rome. Mm. I lived in Rome for a year. Oh, wow. And, um, I used to say that Rome, I've never seen, I felt, I always felt like every day was Pentecost in Rome because there were people, like I would encounter dozens of languages every single day. Um, mm. Part of it was because we were in a pretty touristy section of town and you had people from all over the world who were there. But like the church I was at, um, was an American founded church, uh, so pr- largely English speaking, but also with big Spanish and Italian speaking communities. Right. And there were refugees. Uh, it was a, it hosted a refugee, hosts a refugee center where there are more than a dozen native languages spoken. Most of those people also speak, like you know, m- most of the refugees that I encountered are at least quadrilingual, at the mm. end, if not you know, if not four, then five or six languages spoken Wow! Uh, by most refugees there, you know, and, and then, you know, when you count tourists from all parts of the world, I mean, like literally everything, I, I can't even think about how many languages um, I, I encountered. And so it was like, it was like living in, in Pentecost everywhere, everywhere. Right. I went. Um, and, and so I always think about that, you know, in Pentecost. Um, side note, my favorite color is red. And I okay. and don't get enough days to wear red in the church. If yeah, I, absolutely. <laughs> if they let me change one thing in the liturgical calendar, I would just create a season of red just because we A season of red. Yeah, we need yeah. more. Um, and, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And, and so I, I can finally break out my red coat for one Sunday a year. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm looking forward to that. And anyway, it's just, it's a lot of fun. So, yeah, we sent out an email telling everyone. Because I mean, obviously, like we we started our church during the pandemic, so we've never had an in-person meeting. Um, it's always been online, uh, and so I was trying to figure out like what to do. But so I sent out an email like, "Dress in red if you yeah. if you have red." I don't know. Not everyone even has red, but I have like one. I have one like orange shirt that kind of goes red, and but like I don't I don't I, don't, I can't pull off like a, a straight red shirt. But oh, yeah. yeah, all good. Um, so, I, uh, how did you ha- like? Tell me how you like came to ministry. Like, it, it was it uh, something you've always known you wanted to do, or was it like something that occurred to you later on uh, in life? Kind of both. Um, okay. So I'm, I grew up in the Episcopal Church. I'll tell you that story a little bit later because it's a great, sure. great story. Um, but um, I, I grew up in the Episcopal Church, uh, and I was one of those kids. I, I was. I was an early bloomer in only one way, and that's my involvement in the church. Okay. <laughs> uh, and, uh, like I was, when I was 13, my parents got me to, to join the youth group. And by 14, I was the president of the youth group. Like, oh, wow. <laughs> I, by 15, I was on the bishop's executive council for the diocese. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and by 16, I won my first election to a, to a diocesan office. Um, and so, I mean, like, it was a quick, it was a, a quick yeah. run. Um, and, um, and, you know, so naturally, um, and part of being on the youth, um, I, like I was on the, on the church vestry as a teenager, all kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, part of that, people started saying to me pretty quickly, oh, you're going to be a priest one day, oh, you should be a priest. And I, you know, I was like, yeah, whatever, you know, like I didn't, didn't take it seriously at all, um, or at least didn't take it particularly seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my other passion was politics, still is. I, I, okay. uh, and so I studied political science in undergrad. 
um, worked in campaigns after I graduated um, and uh, worked on campaigns for about two years or so, um, all while kind of still having this bug in the back of my head, you know, maybe I would go into church work, something like that. Uh, and I, I realized, this is 10 years ago now, um, that the more I went into politics, I found that the, the further away it kind of took me from my relationship with God. The, the, mm. the, you know, politics is an ugly business. <laughs> it was then, it is now. Yeah. Uh, uh, and so I, it kind of made me recalibrate and, and I took some time away to think, you know, is this really what my vocation is? I've always been mm. one to believe that, that a vocation isn't just, you know, whether you go into ordained ministry or not, or, you know, church work or not, whatever it is, you know, we have a vocation. Uh, and, and so, and I really began to, to, you know, think and pray about it more deeply. And I visited some seminaries and, um, uh, uh, long story short, I decided to apply, uh, and I, I applied to some dual MDiv JD programs. I still thought that I might be a lawyer, might go into government service, kind of juggling those two passions somehow. Uh, and so I applied to a number of different schools. I was accepted uh, to, to several, including Yale Divinity School. Uh, and so I, I went to um, Berkeley Divinity at Yale for three years. And within my first year, I had really realized, like in conversation with classmates and um, and friends and all that stuff that, that their stories and mine resonated so deeply with each other. Um, and I, um, I really realized that I felt the call to, to ordain ministry to the priesthood. Um, now that is not even remotely the way that you're supposed to go through the process for, <laughs> for ordained ministry in the Episcopal church. Uh, it's like three steps backward. And so uh, <laughs> I, I had to kind of go back you know, go, go backwards and kind of petition the diocese uh, that, that I was in at the time um, to let me into the, into the process. And eventually they did. And uh, they, they did not throw me into the outer darkness with the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. <laughs> uh, and, and so, you know, they, they ordained me anyway. Um, and, and so that was, I was ordained a priest in 2018. So it's been um, going on three years of, nice. of priesthood for me. Yeah. Uh, plus one year as a deacon. So, um, yeah, it's been, it's been an absolute joy. Yeah. I didn't know you went to Yale. Did you study under, uh, John Collins? Was he? I did. I had John Collins for Old Testament. Uh, and I had, I never had got to have his wife, uh, Adela for, for okay. but yeah, no, he was great. I will always remember his, his fantastic Irish lilt as he talks about the Psalms. <laughs> we, uh, at my, at my school, um, our Old Testament prof assigned, Collins's textbook, the Hebrew Bible one, uh, and my school is very evangelical, and all the all the students were having just the hardest time with everything that was in that book, and I was like, it was challenging to me because I did come from like an evangelical background, but I was still kind of approaching it as like, like okay, so like if a lot of the stuff in the Old Testament, like if Moses didn't write the first five books of the Bible and like all this other stuff is like sort of can be called into question. Do I still have Jesus? And I came around, came out with that. I was like, yeah, I still have like, there's like really good arguments for, for the existence of Jesus. But it's just so, I find it so funny now, like when I, when I run into people who studied under Collins or, or know him and I'm like, oh yeah, my, my, the, the students at my school were like, flipping out and thought our old testament prop was a heretic because he dared to propose the documentary hypothesis so, right. <laughs> like yeah. we interrupt this podcast for another installment of mystic moments
Hey friends, so something I touched on here has been an important exercise throughout my ministry and my faith journey, and that's the do I still have Jesus game. The narrative I was fed growing up being Moses writing the Pentateuch, the Bible being literally and 100% true and inerrant is just historically and factually wrong that periodically I learn new information and am disabused of my incorrect notions. Like we now know that Moses did not write the Pentateuch. We we know this for a fact. And not only is the Bible not literally true in many places, including but not limited to Genesis, it's not even trying to be literal. So I am periodically confronted with this question. The This thing I believe was wrong. Do I still have Jesus? And I think there is good historical reasons to that we should believe in Jesus. And I've heard some arguments against this, and most of them misunderstand what reliable historical record was in the ancient world. And if they understood what that was, they'd know we don't actually have a reliable historical record for anyone before the 5th century, at least not by modern standards. And so things like cultural impact and manuscript evidence play a really important role. Anyway, that's not what I'm here to say. I'm here to say is the truth of the actual teachings of Jesus greater than the need for biblical accuracy? Do the merits of the words themselves in the context of when and how they were written outweigh for the need for the story to be 100% true? I think they do. And I think understanding what the Bible is trying to do, especially when it embellishes things, actually adds weight to the significance of the teachings of Jesus and of the Bible overall. Understanding what the Bible is trying to do through its story actually connects us to the story in a greater way and the spirit behind that story, and that spirit is God. And to be clear, I do believe in Jesus. I believe he existed and he did the things that are written about in the Bible, but if he didn't, if it's a story to illustrate and teach us something, that doesn't lessen the truth of the words, and it doesn't lessen their importance to our spiritual health. Okay, enough heresy for one day. Back to the show. And it's all like, it's all fairly straightforward. Like now, like now that I've gone deeper into academia, like there's nothing, there's nothing crazy being said in that book. It's just, no, if, no. if all you know is yeah, evangelicalism. Um, I always say before, before I went to seminary, I had never studied theology at a higher level than Sunday school, right. which, you know, <laughs> I like that, you know, I always say like, that's like, if you, you know, go to med school, but you've never gone beyond middle school science. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a, there was a big learning curve in that first year of seminary. And part of it was, uh, was, I think I hit mine with, with uh, Noah's Ark, you know, and realizing that right. they're, actually really with the creation stories and then Noah's Ark realizing that they are contradictory, like, you know, on their face, contradictory statements. Right. Uh, and like, what do you do with that? You know, and I had a crisis of faith for about a week and then eventually got over. Yeah. I tell people, I tell people, I was like, I became an atheist for half an hour once in a new Testament class because um, we were talking about how God hates child sacrifice. And then I was like, but like the prof was explaining like the nature of Jesus's sonship and how it's like, like it, it's, it's a relational in terms of like, it's not like a biological, like it's a relational. He comes with the authority of the father because he's one with the father, like John 10, he's ontologically the same as the father. But I'm like, before he like got to the end of the lecture, I was like, God hates child sacrifice. 
God sacrificed his child. God hates himself. How does that work? And so I was like, yeah, like the same thing. I was like, I had like this crisis of faith. I'm like, I don't know if I'm a Christian anymore because of this weird glaring thing. And then it worked itself out. And now, yeah. I'm, now I'm much more relaxed about my crises um, of faith. I, but. <laughs> I don't know if you recall this. I, I remember, I'll probably always remember this really wonderful thing that um, the assistant dean uh, at Berkeley, uh, shout out to Greta Getline, uh, said once that was... Um, that you know if you imagine your faith as like a as like a um you know those glass christmas ornaments that are like really mm. fragile um that seminary that when you go into seminary you have this like really you know shiny beautiful kind of glass ball that is your faith and like the first week of seminary they take it and just throw it on the ground <laughs> <laughs> and then you spend the next three years of your life or however long you're in seminary like with glue, piecing it back together, right. you know, little by little. Um, and by the time you graduate, you know, your faith is not in the same shape that you started out with it in. The pieces don't fit together the same way they used to. Right. Uh, but now, if you hold it up to the light, the way that it refracts and reflects the light is actually so much more beautiful and more complex mm. and more full. Um, and, and the way that it enlightens those around it um it's so much stronger and it holds together more strongly because it's been glued you know because it's been, it's been tested been and, yeah. and tested uh and so what you actually have in a lot of ways is much more valuable than what you started with anyway i just think that's the best metaphor i love that that's beautiful yeah yeah, yeah. i'm gonna keep yeah i i find like uh i, I explain like the the seminary process or or the uh, Christian university process like um, the do you know the song days of Elijah yes like these are the days of, so when I heard, first heard that song I was like young high school like grade nine or ten um, and I loved it and it had actions and so we like went nuts with it at youth group and at camp uh, and funny story we ended up um, at the camp I worked for we had two uh, girls who from Ireland who went to Robin Mark's church and they went back and showed him the actions we did and he was mortified (laughs) (laughs) but (laughs) but uh we had these actions and I thought it was the best song and it referenced prophecy and all this stuff that I was interested in and then I started being like well wait like these lyrics aren't biblically accurate (laughs) like like David didn't David didn't build the temple let alone rebuild the temple like what's what's going on here and then so like all of my assumptions about this awesome song were challenged and then as I learned more about theology and like prophetic language and understanding that like anytime after David when it says David it means the Messiah and and so it's it's Jesus saying like um these like like when he's referencing i'm going to rebuild the temple like that so it's like there's there's so there's so many layers and that's just like a a simple analogy for it because like i still go through these things where i'm like oh i thought i understood that and now i found out this one piece of information that makes me feel like i don't understand anything and then you keep going and you you end up coming around again um most of the time (laughs) other times you discover you were holding on to something weird and toxic and then you have to let it go but (laughs) um how how has uh campus ministry worked 
um, like what are some of the challenges you've been facing in campus ministry through the pandemic? So um, number one, campus ministry is the best job. I, I kind of fell nice. into this ministry by accident, like the, the way a lot of us fall into our respective ministries. Right. Uh, and, uh, and it has been just the most wonderful. Uh, I, it's been challenging. I mean, and I would say that in general, the, uh, the best thing about campus ministry as compared to parish ministry in most places that I know uh, is that in campus ministry, everything moves so much more quickly. Um, you know, it's, <laughs> as much as I love the church, if we're known for anything, it's not moving quickly. Um, <laughs> and, and so, but with student, you know, I don't have anybody who says, you know, I don't have anybody in my campus ministry who says, well, that's not the way we did it in the, you know, in, <laughs> you know three decades ago when right. you know, so-and-so was, was faster. Um, you know, they weren't yet born. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, there's that, which is nice. You don't have a lot of those kind of sacred cows that, you know, find their way into, into a lot of church ministry. The other hand, the hardest thing about campus ministry is that everything moves so fast. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you have done something and done something well, it becomes obsolete. Uh, and so, you know, you're always trying to kind of, it's, it's like always chasing the Holy Spirit around, you know, uh, it is, um, you know, I'm reminded of like chasing a toddler around the house or something, you know, it's like, uh, you're always trying to figure out what's the next, what, what's next and, and kind of seeing, um, where, where the spirit is emerging and, and that's been really good. Um, the hard thing with campus ministry, and this is probably true with other ministries as well, um, just kind of gathering people, connecting with people, right. building relationships with people, uh, it's just so much harder to do in pandemic times, uh, and, and so that's been, that's been a real challenge. Uh, and the other, the other bit is um, that the pandemic has been an enormous um, mental health challenge for a lot of our college students. Uh, yeah. I've, got, I've got a lot of sophomores now who uh, are now halfway through their college career and have not seen a normal year yet, you know, and have now lived three quarters of their time so far in college, pretty much in, in pandemic world. Uh, and so, you know, and that's a huge, that's a huge dent into their um, in, in, into their college career, in, into the experiences that they will will have, uh, and so you know, I mean, there and there's huge there's huge challenges that go along with that. Um, we, we also run. I like to say that we have the gayest ministry around. Uh, <laughs> ministry around. Um, not only are both of our pastors um, uh, openly gay, uh, but uh, probably more than 80% of our students are queer. Uh, nice. and, and so, but which is wonderful. That also means that we have a lot of students um, who have had to go back to homes over this, over the last year mm. that are, you know, not as safe as the campus is for them that are, you know, where they are not uh, right. affirmed and loved in the way that they, that they need to be. And um, that's come with a lot of, a lot of mental health challenges too, on top of the just kind of, the stuff that everybody goes through with um, with kind of being a student in virtual world, you know, out of out of uh, kind of outside of the experience that that most of us um, kind of imagine and look forward to in, in the college experience and what they look right. forward to in the college experience. Yeah, so, uh, we're we're all looking forward to um, our students, God willing, being back on campus uh, in the yeah. fall. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. 
Um, I mean, you guys are way ahead of us in terms of people getting vaccinated. Our our government kind of bungled that. <laughs> but um, I actually had a friend um, who uh, he he's also gay uh, and a pastor at, at like, and he's uh, does youth work um, for the United Church. And he was saying that um, he, he said it goes in waves. Like he'll have like years where everyone is into like, he, he also is like a dungeon master. Like he does Dungeons mm-hmm. and Dragons and LARPing and all that stuff. So it was like, it goes in waves. He's like, I have like the suit, like the, the incredibly heterosexual jocks for like two years. And he goes, but like this past two years, I've had this culture where like kids have to come out as straight because everyone oh, yeah. just assumes you're queer. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> I was like, that's amazing. That's, that's sort of the goal. Cause like right yeah. now, queer queer youth and queer people have to go through this weird ritual of telling their parents what sexual organs they prefer <laughs> like and no one else has to do that yeah yeah we had a student uh in my first year who like like everybody else in the ministry was gay and then this one student was straight and like and when they finally told us i was like we were all just like shocked and astounded <laughs> well, I guess we'll accept your heterosexual lifestyle. <laughs> you don't have to like it, you know, just don't fit all the time. <laughs> you know? But anyway, no, all, all good. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, do you find, um, do you find that like the, the, the more liturgical style of, of Episcopal churches, um, do you think th- that is attractive to, to queer people? Uh, or do you think it's just that the Episcopal church was on the forefront of accepting queer people that has like put you guys uh, at an advantage to ministering to the LGBTQ community? You know, I, I, I don't think it matters. Um, I, I think we each have our different traditions. Some people will be attracted to one liturgical style, others to another. Um, you know, I think that we have, it, it, it's interesting. Um, you know, I, we're kind of, uh, and I don't mean this necessarily just with respect to queer students, but like we've kind of gone through this reverse thing where, um, and where you know, it used to be a, maybe a generation or two ago that the church, the type of church that everybody was used to was, you know, kind of more, more traditional liturgy, you know, something more akin mm-hmm. to, you know, Catholic or Episcopal or something like that. Uh, and then, you know, these like, you know, shiny new churches started coming out with, you know, strobe lights and worship bands and all this, you know, all this new music. And like, you know, that was the kind of shock to the system. And people were like, oh my gosh, what's this, you know? And now, at least here in, in Texas where I am, um, that kind of that, that more contemporary evangelical style, so to speak, um, is what a lot of people now see when they think of church. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I live three miles or so from Joel Osteen's church, Lakewood Church. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, like that's what people think of when they think of church. Uh, yeah. And uh, and so kind of when people, when younger people, when young people kind of go in and experience a more liturgical church, I find that for them, that's the shock to the system. They're like, I've never mm. seen this before. What is right. this? You know? Uh, and, um, and, and so that is a nice thing. Um, when I was in, in uh, New Haven, the most popular service among students was um, the, uh, the Anglo-Catholic Church, Christ Church New Haven had a Compline service. It was like very dark, incense, 
candles, like and and chanting, literally playing chant for mm. about twenty minutes, twenty five minutes, and that was it. Um, like they chanted Compline, and then everybody got up and left. Um, and like the students loved that because it was just so different from anything they'd ever seen. Yeah, before. and it's it's like it's a different like immersive experience i think and when like when people are doing the chanting um like there's something that does seem to connect you to to something spiritual um like even like some of the most power like i grew up in the i grew up in the the smoke machine strobe light churches um, and uh and like even the most powerful moments I had in those churches was when they like would cut the band and would just be singing it like in a three part harmony, like an old hymn in three part harmonies, like in the middle of all the flash and bang and whatever. Um, and those are the moments that you're kind of like, Oh, and you feel connected to something like more ancient. Yeah. And I mean, but so I, it was interesting. I had, I had a conversation this past weekend um, with somebody from um, the church that I uh, grew up in, and he was kind of talking about, uh, you know, what is it, he was kind of asking me, you know, in terms of liturgy and worship, like, kind of what it is that the young people are into these days. Mm. For, you know, uh, and, and I said, really, I don't think, I, we get fixated on that, we get fixated on the, on the, on the worship style, on the liturgy, or on the, <clears throat> you know, the music and all that, and while that stuff is important, I think that that's, that is so much less important than things like where does your church stand on issues of justice and have you actually right. been participating in it? Right. What is your church? What is your church doing for the poor? You know? Yeah. A hundred percent. If, um, you know, the thing that I hear most, cause you know, working with students, um, the vast majority of students at our campuses uh, are not religious, have never been religious, don't plan on being religious, don't have particular yeah. interest in religion. Uh, and most of whom have never set foot in a church before in their life. And so uh, they have no idea what happens in a church except mm. for uh, what they have seen on TV and movies, um, which, and in the news, um, which part of that means that number one, they don't differentiate a whit between, uh, you know, say, you know, the Catholic church versus like, like the, the, our denominational structure means nothing to them. You right. know, the differences between Catholic and Baptist or Presbyterian and Methodist, like a, it, it makes no difference. A church, you know, for, for folks who have always been outside of the church structure, a church is a church is a church, essentially. Yeah. Or they know that there are some vague differences in kinds of churches, but that's about it. Um, you know, and, and so there's that. And also it means that, uh, you know, in, in the Episcopal Church, and I think in a lot of our mainline traditions, those of us who are mainliners, we tend to think, that the um, scandals that have caused a lot of distrust in mm -hmm. um, other branches of the Christian world um, mm -hmm. don't affect us. You know, we look at, um, you know, the, we, you know, we hear, you know, those, uh, you know, the, this kind of scandal that affected uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. a couple of months ago. Right. And, you know, we in the mainline church say, oh, that's not us, you know, mm. those crazy evangelicals, you know, and, 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 you know, the, the, uh, abuse scandals that rock the catholic church you know we we hear that and we think oh well thank goodness that's not us you know we, right. we do the kind of um you know we, we we do that thing unfortunately and and we don't realize that for those outside of the church that that is us you yeah. know the church is the church is the church 
Yeah. And, um, and so what that, what that also means is that um, the words that I hear associated most with the word church are words like distrust, mm. judgment, hypocrisy, uh, and, um, you know, also homophobia, um, right. and all, and, and all that is us that affects it. And so, so I spend, I spend a lot of time talking about the, uh, the well earned, the, the, essentially every bit of bad reputation that the church has that we have earned. Yeah. Um, and frankly, frankly, I think that we deserve, um, yeah. and, uh, you know, and you don't hear a lot of pastors or priests saying that. Um, we, we spend a lot of time kind of wanting to put on our best face and one wanted to say, you know, we, we, we do this kind of theory of Christianity that says, you know, oh we, yes, we're, you know, come to our church. We are Christian, but we're not that we are Christian, right. but we're not like those kinds, you know? Um, and, and I think, yeah. I think there's something like, there's something really important in acknowledging that, like in, in doing what you're doing and like, and owning that even though that's not your tradition and that's not your church and that's like you you like yeah thank god like that isn't us uh but that's still like our siblings and so i see a lot of people like when those scandals come out or when people are being abusive they're like oh well those aren't real christians i'm like no they are like this is this is what the are they following christ effectively absolutely not but they we don't get to disown them because right. they are still a product of the history that we all are a part of mm-hmm. so it's like that that's that's our brother or our sister out there making an ass of themselves and <laughs> we need right. to like we need to be able to like to be working to call them back um and to and to point out um where where they're stumbling in love um and not that doesn't always work but and actually as an effect i i've been i've been talking a lot lately about um whenever i think about the civil rights movement in this country uh, in Mm. the 50s and 60s you cannot talk about the civil rights movement without talking about the church and about the black church specifically right you know and and not just about um you know leaders like dr king and ralph abernathy and and um you know, and people like Malcolm X, you know, in the Islamic tradition and, you know, and like, like religious leadership was all over that and not just religious, not just clergy, but mm-hmm. lay people were out there doing the protests, doing the, doing the bus boycotts, do you know, like, mm-hmm. I, I was reading recently about um, uh, 16th Street Baptist Church, which was bombed um, infamously, the four little girls were, uh, were murdered in that bombing in 1963 mm. uh, in Birmingham. And um, the reason that 16th Baptist, 16th Street Baptist Church was chosen, I mean, white supremacists didn't just pick a church. They didn't just pick a random black church. Right. 16th Street was chosen because it was the hub of organizing for racial justice in the black community in Birmingham at the time. Mm. It was chosen because the, all the meetings, or a lot of the meetings and, and events that were happening, you know, organizing people to go out and bus boycott and to go out and protest and to go out and march and to go out and sit in those meetings, those planning meetings, those organizing meetings with community were happening at 16th street Baptist church. And, Mm. and and so the white supremacists in Birmingham decided that that church is so dangerous that we got to take that church out. Mm. I want to be part of a church that's that dangerous. Right. Right. I, I would love, I would love to be part of a church. And I mean that with a big C that is so dangerous that white supremacists are actively coming after it. Where's that right. church? 
you know? Yeah. <laughs> there is that church, right? Yeah. And, you know, and, and that means, just as, as happened in 16th Street Baptist Church, that, that the church puts itself actively in the line of danger to do that because right. that's what's right and just, and that's what, that's what the gospel of Jesus Christ calls us to do. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that's, I don't think that's the church that people see. That's not the church that my students see when they think about church. Right. You know, that, that's not the church that, uh, and, and I mean, I, I'm a part of, you know, I'm, I'm a part of a, a predominantly white mainline tradition that uh, many of us that, um, you know, there were some, there were many parts of the Episcopal church that were active and that were really doing amazing work in the civil rights movement. I, I'm always grateful to, um, and I will always think about the, the martyrdom of Jonathan Daniels, who, who gave mm. his life um, for Ruby Sales in Alabama and jumped in the line of a jumped in the line of a bullet to save that little black girl's life. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I, I encourage everybody to read the story of Jonathan Daniels. Um, but the vast majority and a large proportion of our predominantly white mainline churches at that time, and even a number of our predominantly black mainline churches at that time, you know, were were um, not as present in the story. Uh, right. as, as should have been. And frankly, a lot were standing in the way of progress. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and all of that is history that we need to own up to, you know, right. and, and, and we need to learn from that. Um, and I think a lot about that time. And I've been talking a lot about that time because I think it's a, it's, it's a great, um, not analogy for, but it's, but it, it kind of helps to show us like what the church, what I'm convinced the church needs to be today. Right. Um, you know, I, I want I want to be the church where people see us not because we're you know having great worship in our in our buildings you know with I don't you know whether it's smoke machines or whether it's incense and 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 you know chanting I could care less you know but uh, folks aren't going to you know, that that's not what's going to drive people to church um, what's going to drive people to church is when people see us actually doing the work of justice and righteousness in the world. Uh, mm-hmm. and say, I want to be like that. I, I want what they're having, you know? Right. Uh, the, you know, I think of, think of the, the, the martyrs of the early church, you know, and, and the example of the early church. People flocked to the early church because they were living so radically differently because mm-hmm. they, they, were, they were so filled with the gospel and the love and the life of Jesus that people saw them and said, whatever they have, give me that. Right. Anyway, that's that's that. That's the end of that uh, sermon. <laughs> I could go on about that for days. No, I love it. That's that's amazing. Um, sorry, I was fixing something on my keyboard. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's 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 totally uh, like spot on. Like you're you're talking. I'm sitting here. I'm I, I'm just being filled with what you're saying. I love it. Um, do you think there is like? I'm always hesitant to. Um, uh, like as um, uh, like uh, I, I I'm like the whitest person I know. Uh, so like I'm always hesitant to to want to draw parallels to experiences that aren't mine. Um, but uh, as uh, like a queer person of color in the states, um, do you see parallels in how the church should have responded to the civil rights movement to how the church should be responding to the LGBTQ movement, or is that? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to cut off the rest of your 
No, that's fine. No, no, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Um, in so many ways, uh, I, and I, I happen to be the moderator for a group of queer students of color at University of Houston, and so I, that's kind of been been on my mind a lot. Uh, mm. And not, and yes, to to how the church should be responding to LGBTQ folk, um, and and many more, you know, and and right. beyond to to every marginalized community. Um, but yes, I mean that the. the you know, the almost, well, so many of the queer students that I work with ha, and at both in my ministry and those who are part of my universities have been um, kicked out of, pushed out of, and pushed away from every church that they have ever known and been a part right, of. Right. Uh, and so, um, you know, that, obviously that has a huge impact on, on the way that we, the way that we are and the way that we live. Uh, and a huge part of what we do is owning up to that. I mean, as I was saying earlier, you know, we we don't go out saying we're the church, but we're progressive. We're the church, but we love gay people. Right, right. We, we go out saying we are the church and we love gay people because and, and LGBTQ folk of all kinds and you know and people of all you know and 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 people of every marginalized community because um, we believe because we are so compelled by by the radical. Um, love of Jesus Christ that um, the, the, the radical anti-exclusionary love of Jesus Christ um, that we can do no other but to be um, but but to follow in the same way um, right. you know and and so um, you know I, I uh, a couple weeks ago um, preached about the the Ethiopian eunuch and what mm. an example he was for um, for those of uh, of differing um, gender representations, you know, outside of right. the, the binary of their time. Um, and and the, the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch is a sign for all of us that that um, God is not beholden at all to the gender binaries that uh, enrapture so much of the church. Um, and and yet we don't, we, we forget about that example a lot right. and, and many others. Um, yes, so, so I, I, do, I do draw that parallel a lot. Um, but the other, the other thing I do a lot is, um, like, I, I, I really, I wish the church um, were kind of, kind of understood the power that we have, you know, mm. I, it's amazing. One of the things that I found when I first started making TikToks was um, that, like, when I would talk about being a, being a priest or a pastor and, and being gay and all that, like, people had never freaking heard of that before. Right. Never. And, and uh, uh, so many of my, of my colleagues and friends who are, who are part of the sort of hashtag progressive clergy uh, <laughs> um, have, have had such a similar experience. Like, so, and, and here, here in, you know, in Texas, right in the, right in the heart of the Bible Belt, um, like being a progressive Christian, being a Christian, being a pastor who is gay, who, who loves queer folk, um, like is just is so daggone revolutionary <laughs> and right. like we don't even realize we don't realize what we have we do not realize what we have yeah. uh, and and so I, I think you know by I wish we understood and kind of leaned in, leaned into that more as a church and not because you know it's not as a strategy for church growth but uh, as just as a way of living into the love of Jesus uh, that happens to be incredibly revolutionary in ways that we don't even realize and affects people's lives in ways that we don't right. even realize. 
and i think when we start like like so when i was a teenager i was big into apologetics and i was like memorizing, yeah yeah i was memorizing all these arguments and i would get into debates with people and like i don't think like if conversion of the people i was talking to was the goal i don't think i converted anybody and since I have sort of given that up, uh, like like now I'm like a crazy universalist heretic. But like, <laughs> but like since since giving all that up, and and since that stopped being my goal to like convince people that they're wrong and I'm right, and my focus has shifted to actually just loving people and loving them in radical ways. Um, so many more people have like been open to what I believe and wanted to know more about what I believe and sort of started believing what I believe because because my focus shifted away from like seeing them as a conquest and instead Mm -hmm. seeing the image of God in them and that they are deserving of love first and foremost and deserving of care first and foremost yeah absolutely I mean I say all the time you know except working in a in a in a field where in a university setting where, where the vast majority of people are, are completely unchurched, you know, folks coming into, folks coming into, into contact, into connection with us may not know anything about, uh, about the church. You know, if I, I, you know, if I, if I come to them with, um, you know, paragraphs of doctrine and, you know, mm-hmm. all that, um, you know, it's, it's going to be worthless and, you know, it's likely to hurt them even more. But everybody, even if you have never heard the name Jesus Christ before, you probably know what it feels like to experience love, or mm-hmm. if not, you certainly know what it exper- what it feels like to not experience love, right. um, to experience lack of that. You, that that feeling is palpable for every mm-hmm. human being, um, mm-hmm. and and so um, you know if if the church actually comes to people and says, "I'm here because of love," and not even says we're here, but if when the church actually just shows up just shows up Uh, particularly in spaces where we have where the church has not shown up through our own fault um Mm -hmm. you know then people people begin to realize and it takes a long time it really does but people begin to realize that oh these folks really are here because Mm -hmm. of love you know they're they're it's not it's not because of an agenda we're not showing up with a like you said, we're, we're not showing up with, you know, here's the five-step method to, you know, win souls over for the Lord. Right. You know, we're, we're not here. It's the um, Romans road. <laughs> you want anything. Right. And, and people have so much experience with churches that only show up because they want something. Yeah. Um, and only show up because they're trying to, you know, win you over or whatever, you know. And, and, and my students, folks can spot that from a thousand paces, you know. 100%. 100%. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and yet would we show up? just just to be there just to listen to people um you know that makes so much more of an impact than it ever was than it ever would you know trying to throw the bible at people and yeah. uh, you know and and make them believe what i believe because i'm right obviously uh, <laughs> you know, like, like it doesn't it doesn't, it doesn't make sense so yeah. uh, but that that's the hard that's the hard hard work of being the church it takes so i'm of all of, of the gifts that the good Lord has blessed me with being patient is not real high on the list. Uh, <laughs> and, and so, um, you know, it, it is a real challenge for me to, to sit there. It's like, um, you know, it's, it, you know, the old metaphor planting seeds and waiting for them to grow, you know, and waiting for the Holy spirit to do something with them. 
um, I, I don't, I don't do well with that. Right. <laughs> and yet right. you know, it's a constant calling that, that we're drawn into. Yeah. And even like, um, is it in Ezekiel, um, when they're sort of instructed to plant seeds that they're not going to see, like, like, you're yeah. Planting, yeah, yeah, you're planting fields yeah. that you won't even see. Yeah. Well, the fruit yeah. Of. So, so, um, I, I, I love, um, it may actually be Deuteronomy. Um, so, or we may be thinking of different, but similar thing, but I, I, I um, one of my favorites in, in the Hebrew Bible is, is, um, is in Deuteronomy. Um, I'm not even going to say chapter cause I think I know, but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> right? but um, where, you know, Moses starts talking about when, when you go into the land that mm-hmm. uh, the Lord, your God is bringing you into, um, you know, that you will see, you know, there, there will be, you know, wells that you did not dig and you will rest right. under, you know, you, you will drink from wells that you did not, uh, from wells that you did not dig and sit under the shade of trees that you did not plant, you know, and, and, uh, and, and, and when that, when you go into, and, you know, and when your children ask you what, um, uh, you know, when, when your children ask you about it, when your children ask you what happened, you know, then you will tell them the story that the Lord, our God brought us out of the land of Egypt, you know? Mm. Um, and, and I, I love, I love that story. I think it's so, because it tells us so much about, uh, uh, yes, that we are called in so many ways to be the, to be the, we are both the inheritors of that land. And yet in the same, in the same way, we're called to be the, the diggers of cisterns that we will not drink from and the planters right. of trees that we, uh, under whose shade we will not rest. Um, you know, and, and, and of course, as the story, um, you know, at least kind of reading on its face that the, 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 you know, Moses is giving this farewell discourse, you know, and he will not go into the land that he is, um, you know, that uh, about which he is telling his people, um, you know, that it'll be uh, that, that, um, you know, Joshua will, uh, you know, will lead the people from then on. Right. Uh, and so, um, you know, we, that is so much, you know, in campus ministry, and I think any of us that work with students, you know, know that we are, that we're planting seeds, you know, and that, you know, 20, 30, 40 years from now, those students, you know, may, uh, you know, we may find that those students have gone on, you know, to carry on that, that teaching and, you know, may, um, may, may say that, you know, campus ministry changed their lives. I have people today tell me that the campus ministry changed their lives mm. and that they're, that they're doing what they're doing now because of, because they had, uh, you know, campus ministers who, right. uh, who were transformational to them. Um, the other, the other thing that I, is, my other favorite. I thought what I thought you were going to say about Ezekiel was the the story of the dry bones, which is my favorite oh, yeah. of all time. Yeah, uh, and um, you know, and, and I won't rehearse it, uh, but um, you know, I, that story always reminds me that um, that God is always bringing that that God is always bringing forward new life, uh, and and that you know, I think God is always calling us, you know, into those spaces where where there's nothing but but. Um, you know, death and destruction and, and kind of left behind ruins, you know, I, I think of, um, you know, kind of going back to what we were saying earlier, you know, where, where the church, where, where the, the reputation of the church among the people whom I serve uh, is, is nothing but, you know, judgment and, and, uh, and hypocrisy and, yeah. um, and exclusion, you know, and, and God calls and tells us, go and prophesy to the bones you know, go and preach mm. to the bones, go and speak my words to the bones. Uh, and, and God, uh, you know, gives us the words to speak to, you know, through our, through our nervousness and, and, and anxiety and pain, you know, and, and, and as we do that, 
uh, you know, I don't even know that we, we kind of know what we are, what we're doing in the moment, but in, but, but God, you know, brings together through the power of God's spirit, you know, bone comes to bone and, and, you know, God breathes and flesh begins to come around the bones. And, you know, before we even know it, things that we didn't even know that we were breathing into and speaking into are coming into being and living and moving in the world. And, and, and God is, uh, I think that's a fantastic strategy for church growth. <laughs> but, uh, but no, anyway, I, I think um, that God is always doing so much uh, in us and calling us to, to just keep on prophesying to the bones. Um, and, 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 you know, somewhere in the midst of that, we find that the things that were, um, that had been dead and destroyed and um, left behind suddenly come to life. Uh, yeah. and, and the church that we didn't even know could be the world that we didn't even know could be comes into being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so powerful. I love that. And yeah, like, and the, the analogy of, of planting wells that you're, you won't drink from and, and planting trees that you won't sit under the shade of, like, like, I think that is like the ministry that we're called to now as, as queer people, uh, especially in, in the church, um, is to facilitate the breathing in of God's mm-hmm. breath into the church in new ways. Uh, and we might not see the full, the full benefit of that. Um, but, but the fact that we're able to do it for the people of coming generations is, yeah, yeah is, yeah, is super that, important. And knowing that God is already breathing into the people among whom right. you all deserve, you know, a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and to exist in that tension and to exist in that, um, like just, just to have knowledge of like the process that, that is going on and the trust that God is causing this, uh, resurrection to happen, uh, both in us and in the people we work with. I think that's, that's intensely, um, mystical to pull it back to the title of the podcast like i think i think that's that's a that's an amazing thing this has been great man thank you so much for for coming on um and like uh i think anyone listening i'm i'm just sitting here holding on to every word you say like this is this has been like it's been a great sermon for me to listen to (laughs) um where can uh where can people find you if you want to be found anywhere sure on the internet (laughs) You can find us at uh, hughcan.org, H-O-U-C-A-N.org. Um, that's the easiest way to, to find us and our ministry. Um, uh, I'm still on TikTok. You can find me at uh, uh, Rev Charles G-I-V. Um, so uh, you can find me there. And uh, I'm on Instagram as well um, at Rev Charles G-I-V. Uh, and our ministry is uh, at Houston Canterbury uh, on Instagram. Perfect. Thank you so much again and uh, God bless you in your ministry. And um, yeah. Hope, Always a treat. Yeah. Thanks for Thank having you. me. My pleasure. Thanks. See you later. We did it. Congratulations. That's the episode for today. Thank you so much to Charles Graves for talking with me. Definitely go find him on the interwebs. If you are a college or university student in Houston, go find UCAN Ministries. Uh, if you want to find me online, I'm at CFC underscore Pastor Jeff on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find this podcast and my other projects online at theautisticmystic.ca. And if you want to check out my church, Chosen Family Church, which is a fully LGBTQ2PA plus affirming and led online church community, 
can find us at chosenfamilychurch.com. You can click the Join Zoom service link and we'll form will send you the Zoom link and password to our bi-weekly services. If you like this show, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Ratings and reviews help us get discovered by new people and continue doing the good work that we're up to. Until next time, remember that you are the divine image of God, the chosen vessel for the Holy Spirit, and the way that God interacts with creation, and so are the people you hate. Love you.